And uh, please grab your Bibles and turn back to page 2, uh, to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, you join us week 2 of our series in Genesis. Uh, if you were here last week for Genesis 1, um, I was blown away by the bigness of God. You know how Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 begins, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God is the center of our universe. God is the center of his world. Everything is about him. Uh, he is the one who created the furthest planet and the biggest planet you could ever imagine. He's also the one who created the tiniest insect, even the tiniest thing that a microscope cannot even begin to fathom. And he created you and he created me. And we remind in Genesis 1 that we are here uh, to worship him as a good, awesome creator God. We also remind in Genesis 1 that uh, God is the one who sustains his world. He doesn't just uh, create his world, walk away, leave the world to run by itself. He holds the whole world in his hand. Uh, He keeps the the world spinning. He keeps us giving us uh, air to breathe. He holds your life. He holds my life in his hand. And that's why we can trust him. I had a few emails this week uh, from people who were a bit upset upset that I didn't uh, deal with questions like ancient Near East creation myths and the age of the universe and dissatisfied with the whole evolution question and I didn't deal with literary form. I'm sorry, this is not a lecture. This is a sermon. Uh, If you want to answer those things, come and talk to me. I'd love to chat about it. Do a PGC course. uh, Go to more college and do a a lecture on Genesis. These are sermons. I've got 20 minutes. I'm trying to deal with the, the big issues what it really means to be known by your creator God and to be truly human. And that's where we're going tonight. What does it mean to, to be human? You see, Genesis 1, in many ways, is like the, the cosmic creation. It's like God's got a, a camera, a, a video camera. He's got it on the wide-angle lens. You see everything. It encompasses everything. At the far extremities, he creates everything, the heavens and the earth. He creates the, the skies, and he fills the skies with the sun, the moon, and the stars. He creates the land and he fills the land with the animals and the birds and the fish and the creation and then us as human beings. And he turns to Genesis 2 and it's kind of like God switches lenses on his camera. You don't have a second creation account. It's the same creation account but you just focus, you've zoomed in and in and in into one place, one land called Eden. The word Eden just means uh, delight or, or pleasure. Uh, in the, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, it translates the word as paradise. That's where you get the idea of paradise from. And what you've got here is, is man and woman in this beautiful, beautiful garden called Eden. It is beautiful. Look down at verse uh, 6 with me. Sorry, verse 8 with me. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden in delight, and there he put the man he'd formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Look how good God is. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. He gave them everything they wanted. And it's beautiful because you've got uh, rivers there in verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And you've got these four rivers. You've got the Pishon, uh, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Uh, we know where, uh, where the Tigris is. We know where the Euphrates is. We don't know where the Pishon is or the Gihon is. It doesn't matter. Uh, there was a flood sort of a few years later. They might have just been washed away. Uh, the point is that there's a beautiful place. It's called Eden. The question you've got to ask is, does it matter whether there's a literal place with a literal man and a literal woman? Christians can disagree on this. Uh, 
go and talk about it. For me, it does matter. Because if there wasn't one man and one woman who sinned, that changes everything. It changes your idea of creation, your idea of humanity. It, your, it changes your idea of Jesus because he's claimed to be the second Adam. If there wasn't literally a first Adam, then how can he be the second Adam? Uh, but we can talk about that later. The issue is that there was a beautiful, beautiful place called Eden. Now, who's in the garden? Tell me, who's in the garden? Adam is there, and God is there. Uh, look how he's described in uh, verse 4. When the Lord God... See, in chapter 1, he's just God. He's just Elohim. Now he's the Lord God. He, he is Yahweh God. He is the personal God. You have this intimacy there. And then man is there, and woman is there. And as you read this chapter, you're supposed to say, wow, this place is beautiful. And there's intimacy between God and his, his creation. There's intimacy between the man and the woman. And everything is just perfect and glorious and peaceful and harmonious. And you're supposed to go, wow, I'd love to be there. If only the world was like that today, wouldn't that be beautiful? But my big question today is this. What does it really mean to be human? Someone said to you, what does it mean that you are a human being? How would you answer that? Who are you? Where's your, your worth? Your dignity, where does that come from? Where does your value come from? Where does your purpose come from? Are you important in this world? Who am I? It's a question that keeps uh, psychiatrists and psychologists in business, isn't it? Who are we as human beings? I want to argue tonight that it's all wrapped up with where you come from. It's true, isn't it, that where you come from shapes who you are today. I'm from the UK. As a person from the UK, it's okay to drink warm beer. It's good to drink warm beer. It's okay to lose at sport. We're good at it. I meet people who have been adopted, and they often want to find their adopted parents because where they came from somehow shapes who they are, even if they don't know the person who actually gave birth to them. They want to know, where did I come from? And as a human being, as a man and a woman... Who you are is so intricately wrapped up with where you came from and the God who made you. And that's why Genesis 2 is so important. Look how the Westminster Confession puts it. It's on the screen. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness and true holiness after his own image having the law of God written on their hearts and with power to fulfill it, and yet, under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will. They received a command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. It's just a beautiful summary. We are reasonable, immortal souls. We have righteousness and true holiness. We are in the image of God. And while they kept that command, they were in this beautiful communion with their God. And I said to you, don't you want to be like that? That human being who has that intimacy with God. That human being who has that righteousness and that holiness. That's what Genesis 2 is all about. Let me take you there. 
Who am I? Number one, I'm intricately created by a good God. I am intricately created by a good God. It's such a simple point, an obvious point. But we as human beings, we come from God. We are men and we are women and we are, crea- we are creatures of the creator. We're part of his creation. You are not the creator. You're just a creature. And yet you have been beautifully and uniquely and intricately woven together by the hands of God. That's there in verse 7. The Lord God formed the man, Adam, from the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And that first man, Adam, became a living being. Now, what, what two things does God do in that verse? He forms the man and he breathes life into the man. He forms a man from the dust of the ground. But you know, friends, we are not just God-shaped pieces of earth. We're not just a mix of chemicals. We're not just this combination of electrical impulses. The word formed is a very personal word. It's like the handiwork of God. It's the skill of God. It's the design of God. It's one, Psalm 139 describes it as you've been knit together. It's like that God is, is knitting each individual together intricately in the mother's womb. I want to take you right back to the creation of the first man and the first woman. Can you imagine you're there in this garden and the shrubs are there and the animals are there and the vegetation is there, but there's no man yet. And God, in his wisdom, forms the man. And so he gets bones together. And he arranges them, the big bones and the small bones, and he creates joints so these bones can actually work together and and then God, in his wisdom, goes, this, this human needs two kidneys. Not one, but two kidneys. And then I'll give them a liver. And then I'll give them lungs so they can breathe. Not one lung, but two lungs. Oh, they need a heart. And so God forms the heart. Beautiful hearts with, with four different ventricles and aortas. And, and then he forms blood vessels and veins and arteries and then he thinks oh they need platelets and they need they need skin and so God forms skin and it has a, a dermal layer, an epidermal layer and then God thinks oh that skin needs to breathe and so he creates sweat glands and then he creates hair and he puts hair on our head and hair on other parts of our bodies and then he thinks oh they need fingers and so I'll create five things on each hand and a thumb, which is slightly different. And I'll create toes so they can actually balance and walk. And, and then I'll create their facial features and I'm going to form them with, with these nostrils, two of them, so they can actually smell and breathe. And, and then I'm going to put these two eyes so they can see. And then these ears so they can hear. And I'm going to create this beautiful and intricate hearing system and then give them a mouth so they can speak, and teeth, and gums, and saliva, and thyroid glands, and all these kind of things. You're going, wow. And scientists and doctors have been trying for centuries and centuries and centuries to work out how the human body really works. And God is just there, forming us, forming us as human beings. And you are so 
unique and so different from every other human being that's walked on this earth because you're made perfectly by the hands of God. That's chapter 2, verse 7, God forming the man. And we're supposed to have the why factor, but we don't because we just assume that this human body of mine is mine. Of course it works until your eyes fail and your kidneys fail and your heart fails and then you start to ask the questions. But actually you are made by God. What else did God do in verse 7? He forms and then he, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. I love that beautiful picture. It's almost like God is, God is face to face with a man and he's just breathing into them. Almost like he's kissing the man. And the word for, for breath there, sorry, the word for, for breath there is, is nefesh. It's, it's, not the, it's not physical life he's breathing in. It's spiritual life. He's giving the man a soul. He's giving this man a spirit that's going to make him so different from the animal creations so they can know God and have spiritual discernment. That's what makes you human. Uh, the, the, the life that God has breathed into you. Job 32 says, it's the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty that gives him understanding. The reason that you can comprehend God and understand things is because God has breathed life into you. That's the first man. And that's every other man and woman that's ever been created. Formed. Knit together in your mother's womb. You're beautifully and wonderfully made. Look at the question again, who am I? Your value your dignity, your worth, your purpose is all tied up with the fact that the hand of God has made you. Now, you're not accident. You're not just part of an evolution process. You're not a random mix of chemicals. You might not like yourself, but God chose to form you with your color hair and your shaped face and your shaped body and your personality and your nose and your lips and your fingers. That's how he chose to make you. And don't let anybody tell you that you're worthless. Because God saw you in your mother's womb and he formed you, you personally as you are. Who am I? Intricately created by a good God. Number two, you're an image bearer of God. Look at that statement. I am an image bearer of God. That's what it means to be human. We are different from the animals. Don't listen to the the radical environmentalists who say, we're just animals. You're not. Because no animal has ever created the image of God. Turn back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us, again, hint of the Trinity, one God, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us, Make man in our image, in our likeness. The same things, image and likeness. Not two different things, but just the same, same idea. In our likeness, in our image. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You are made as an image bearer of God. You're different from the fish, you're different from the birds, you're different from the animals. You are the image-bearer of God. What does that mean? Yeah, part of it is that you have this moral capacity, that you do know right from wrong. That's part of it. Uh, Part of it is the 
you know, the, the spiritual aspect where there's some sense of, of immortality. That's part of being made in the image of God. Uh, part of it is this, this mental aspect that, that, that God has created you so that you can think and reason and ponder and debate complex things and have this complex language. Have you ever thought about I know, a group of pigs sitting around discussing the Trinity? It just doesn't happen. But we as human beings do that because we're made in the image of God. And part of it is that we have this sense that we can pray and praise God and hear God's word. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But it's not the whole thing. To be made in the image of God, listen carefully, means that God created you to reflect something of his character. God created us as human beings to be a reflection of who he is, a God of relationships, Father, Son, and Spirit, a God of Trinity, and he created you so that you can know him and know each other and relate to each other. And as you relate to him and relate to each other, you reflect something of what he is, who he is. So, you know, the way that you, you love each other, the way that you love the person who has caused you so much harm and has caused you so much hurt, but the way that you love them as your enemy, that's supposed to re- reflect something of what God is and who God is. The way that you forgive each other, the way that a young child depends so exclusively on, on his father and trusts him, that's supposed to reflect something of what it's like uh, with us and God. You were made here, as Calvin said, as a mirror reflecting something of God into the earth. Again, that's where your worth comes from. Not your musical creativity, not your athletic ability, not your intelligence, not your looks, your worth and your identity is this, that you are an image-bearer of God. Now, of course, that's distorted by the fall, isn't it? We don't live in the true image of God as he intended. But you know what? God is trying to do that in you right now. He's trying to recreate you, repattern you into the image of God that he wants you to be. That's why he sent his son. That's what the Spirit is doing right now, trying to recreate the image of God that he intended for you when he first made this world. Colossians 3 says this, You've put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. As day by day you put on your new self, you're being renewed into the image of your creator. Who are you? Intricately, beautifully woven together by a good God. An image bearer of God. This is important, number three. I'm created male or female. God creates genders. Not agenders, but genders. Male and female. He doesn't create millions of different genders. He could have done that. But he chose to create two. Men and women. Male and female. Both human, both, human, both beautiful, both in the image of God. And look what he does. Uh, chapter 2, verse 21. He's created man from the dust. That's where man comes from, the dust. Where does women come from? The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man. And he brought it to the man. And the first words that, that man says in the whole Bible is this, Wow! Wow, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
man is created from the dust, woman is created from man. That's what Paul says in the New Testament. But it's in God's wisdom, he's made us male and female. There is absolute equality. You're both equal in the image of God. You're both equally important, equal value, equal worth, equal in creation, equal in salvation. You know, Christ died for all, for men and for women. No distinction. Slave, free, Jew, Greek, male, female, you're all one in Christ. God doesn't discriminate based on gender. It's interesting, at Pentecost, when he gives the Spirit, he says, well, at that point, you know, the sons and the daughters will prophesy, the men servants and the maid servants will see dreams, all one, all equal. That's really important to stress. You know, some, some cultures, uh, no, some religions, uh, they teach that one sex is superior to the other. Christianity doesn't teach that. God doesn't teach that. He says he created us male and female, one, <laughs> both in the image of God. How dare any one sex uh, take pride in their superiority? How dare any one sex feel that they're inferior? Equal in value, equal dignity, equal worth. And God created men and women to, the best word is to complement each other. Look what he says down in verse 18. The Lord God said, the first thing that's not good in the whole Bible so far, it is not good for the man to be alone. So what does God do? I'll make a helper suitable for him. Or literally, I'll make a helper like opposite him. And God doesn't make a helper. Helper is not a, a degrading term. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. It's a positive term. It's not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to create another human being as a helper, like opposite. Not another man, not a beast of the field. I'm going to create woman. And I love the fact that God doesn't create woman from the head of the man or from the feet of the man. God creates woman from the side of the man, from the heart of the man, from the rib of the man, because they just fit together so perfectly. And they complement each other biologically. And sexually, they complement each other. And they complement each other emotionally. And, and they complement each other as they live and work and care for this earth. And so God created man and God created woman. I don't think I need to tell you that, that men and women are different. We are different. I remember as a young child, I don't know how old I was. I've got a sister who's four years older. She used to play with Cindy dolls. That's the equivalent of Barbies today. I would play with action men and I would walk into her bedroom and I would shoot her Cindy dolls with my action men. That's what I did. Or I'd get a football and throw it at a Cindy doll and try and knock them out. And Just what I did as a boy, she played with her Cindy dolls, I played with my guns. Not these ones, the other ones. Those ones. <laughs> We're just different. And we complement each other. Now why is this important? It's important because, because society is trying to blend us into one. Society is trying to say men need to be more feminine and women need to be more masculine and anything that a man can do, a woman can do, anything a woman can do, a man can do. And the Bible says no, it's actually beautiful and glorious that we are different. And that we do complement each other. 
why is our world becoming so messed up? Because we're losing this complementarity thing. Because you've got women want to be men and men want to be women. It just doesn't work. And God in his wisdom says, no, no, you're equal and you complement each other. And I want to say, if you're a man here today, rejoice in that, don't resent it, and be the man of God that God has made you to be. And if you're a woman, rejoice in your womanhood. Don't resent it. And be the beautiful woman of God that God wants you to be. And as we live together as men and women, we can do what God called us to do, which was to look after his world and care for his world and live here in harmony and peace instead of fighting and squabbling what it means to be men and what it means to be women. The other thing that God does with men and women is that he gives them uh, intimacy. Beautiful intimacy. A sexual intimacy. That's there in verse 24. For this reason. You ever, ever asked why those three words are there? For this reason. For what reason? Well, the reason he's just made a woman. I've just made a woman, and, so, and therefore for this reason, well, I'm going to give them intimacy. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And the New Testament picks this up to describe marriage, where one man leaves his father and mother. He's not to you know, grow up, stop being dependent on your parents, just move away from your parents, and then be united to your wife, and you become one flesh. The same word one is used in Deuteronomy to describe God. He is one God. It's that one flesh union. Uh, it's a physical union. It's a spiritual union. It's an emotional union. But the world and society and God looks down at a husband and wife, one man and one woman, and he sees just one. It's the most perfect, beautiful intimacy you could ever imagine. And that's why God says, no, they were both naked and they, they felt no shame. Uh, before sin entered the world, we could just stand in front of our wife and stand in front of our husband with no embarrassment and, and no shame and just enjoy sexual intimacy with each other. Of course, sin's messed all that up because we're just sexually immoral and we feel guilty about everything. We don't like our body shapes and so we're just embarrassed to be naked. It's not the way that God created us. Male and female, equal, complement each other for beautiful intimacy. Who are you? I'm a man. I'm a woman. Made by God in his image. But everything I've said so far is all about you, isn't it? And that's the problem with our world. We think the world revolves around us. I am the center of this world. Life's all about me. Life's not fair. What about me? What about me? What about me? And when God first created man and woman, it wasn't about them. It was about God. That's why my last point is so important. Who are you? I am created to obey, to honor, to serve, to delight in my God. That's why you're here. Not to glorify yourself, but to honor and to obey the one who made you and to worship him. Because this picture in Genesis 2 is a beautiful picture of intimacy where God walks with his people and intimacy with each other. But God places two trees in the garden, doesn't he? Look at verse 9. Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And people have debated time and time again, are these real trees? Why not? Why shouldn't they be? And they debated what they mean. I mean, the tree of life is obviously the tree that where you eat of it, you live forever. Uh, what's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, people say it's about the moral aspect. When you eat of it, you know right from wrong. Or when you eat from it, you have omniscience, which means you know everything. I just think it's, that it's the, the tree that when you eat of it, you're given wisdom, uh, wisdom which God in his wisdom didn't want you to have. You're given wisdom which God in his wisdom didn't want you to have because you didn't need to have it because you'd know things which you didn't need to know. It's called human autonomy. When you eat of it, you think that you know everything and you start to be God. And God is really kind, isn't it? He warns them. Like a parent who says to a child, you know, please don't, I command you, don't, don't, don't drink petrol. It's good, isn't it? Because if you drink petrol, you'll die. I command you, don't run with scissors next to your neck. I command you, don't stick your hand into the flame. It's good, isn't it? Now, what does God command? Look down at verse 16. The Lord God, did, did, did God suggest this? Did God say, oh, it might be a good idea? No, God commands you are free. I love that. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Adam, Eve, this whole garden is yours. Enjoy it. Every single tree you see, take of it, eat of it, except just one thing. Verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. My friends, what is Genesis 2 all about? It's really the heart of what it means to be human. Listen carefully. To be human means that you enjoy the presence of God by obeying him forever. You enjoy the presence of God by obeying him forever. That's what's at stake here. They're given a choice. Will they trust God and obey him and enjoy his intimacy, enjoy his presence? Or will they say, stuff you, God, and be thrown out of the garden? I find it fascinating that God put the, the tree in the, the middle of the garden. Not at the edge. Right in the middle, so they would see it every day. It's kind of like you imagine them walking past this tree, and every day they look up and think, oh, no, I can't eat that tree. I can't eat that fruit. But going through this brain every day is that choice, isn't it? Hmm. Why not? Am I going to obey God or, or not obey God? Will I, will I trust God or will I just say, stuff you, God? And what you've got here is when they choose to obey God, when they live God's way, actually they do enjoy that intimacy. And that's why you were made. That's what it means to be human. To live life on his earth, doing what he tells you to do, obeying him, serving him, honoring him, glorifying him, and you'll live life as you were intended to, be, to live. Isaiah 43 says this, Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. God created us for his glory. That's why he formed us, that's why he made us. And he commands us, he, he urges us to obey him. 
keep meeting people who say, hmm, who am I? And I struggle with my identity and I don't feel close to God and I feel distant from God. I want to say to them, well, do you ever actually obey God? And when you read the scriptures, do you do what it says? Oh, it's just so hard. Yeah, if you try to do it, if you strive to do it, if you're desirous to do it, then you might actually enjoy life as it was intended to be. At the moments I'm closest to God, the moment where, moments in my life where I do really rejoice in the manner of God that he's made me is when I'm obeying him, when I'm doing what he tells me to do. At times when I don't, that's the times when I struggle most. Who are you? If you grasp this simple truth, you're created to enjoy the presence of God by obeying him, doing what he says day in, day out. I don't know what you struggle with in terms of your identity. I don't know whether you're this overconfident person who thinks you're wonderful and thinks you're, you're so successful. And you just sort of breeze through life and you think, wow, well, look at me, I'm wonderful. Or you might be these people who just feel like you're worthless and nobody loves you and you have no purpose and you have no value and you just feel like you're the scum of the earth. And wherever you are on that spectrum, from the person who has no self-esteem to the person who is just so overconfident, Genesis 2 brings you back to reality. Who are you? You are beautifully, intricately woven together by a good God, made in his image, male or female, rejoice in that. But the way that you do that is by obeying him and honoring him and serving him. Let me pray. These are words uh, from Psalm 73. I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father, thank you that you made us so uniquely, so intricately, so perfectly. Uh, Father, thank you that you desired a world where there was no sin and there was no marred human life. Uh, Father, thank you for this picture of just a beautiful intimacy, people walking with you and people walking with each other. And Father, thank you for the promise that that's where we're heading, that we're heading for the new creation where we will in, again enjoy your presence. Lord, as we live on this earth day by day, whatever this week holds, would you remind us of these great truths that we're known by you and made by you and loved by you and we are, we are bearing your image. And Lord, give us the heart, the desire, the will and the mind that wants to to live for you, to obey you, so that we can strive to be the men and women that you have, you have longed for us to be. And I ask that for Jesus' sake.